Well, we're heading into Easter, and uh, I've been wanting us to be in the Gospels. I'm wanting us to read and think and respond to the words that Jesus speaks to us. And every professional group has an oversight body, an oversight group that sets standards and enforces, uh, sets standards that measures competence and, and enforces moral and ethical guidelines by which people in that profession must meet or they'll be reprimanded or perhaps expelled from that sector. It's to protect the reputation of the profession the general public, and to keep the level of work, the quality of work high. The last thing that you want to hear is that your surgeon didn't finish her course or cheated on her exam. That your child's teacher has not done well on their police check. That your banker is suspected of having sticky fingers that your pastor has been unfaithful to the call that God put on their life, that your insurance provider has played fast and loose with the truth when you signed on to your policy. You want to know that the standards that have been set have been fully met and fully followed. We're going to Luke chapter 9 today, and if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn there. Jesus says to his followers in Luke chapter 9, if anyone wants to be my follower. So the reader knows that whatever's going to come at the end of that sentence has got to be important. Jesus is going to speak to a standard. He's going to lay down the price. He's going to speak about attitude and expectation. I just, just remembered, if you're ages three to grade six, there's a service downstairs for you and you can go there. You probably are already there, but if you're sitting there waiting for me to let you go, you can go, okay? Um, Jesus is going to speak about a standard and and talk about the price. And and we've taken care this morning to, to get up out of bed and prepare and to come to the house of God because we love, we, we follow Jesus. We had options, we had choices, but our love, our devotion said that today I choose to follow him. I, I choose to, to come together with the brothers and the sisters and to be built up in my faith, to share and encourage with one another and, and to prepare for whatever my mission, wherever my mission might take me in the week that is in front of me. Yes, we want to follow Jesus. That's why we're here. However, in our day, in, in the society in which we live, where, where we have so many options in front of us, we like to negotiate the terms of our commitment. We like to believe that as free moral agents, we can opt out when it's agreeable and, or opt in when, when it's agreeable and opt out of the portions of the contract that are, are too costly, too inconvenient, not really suited to our particular style or personality. 
It's important that we know how Jesus finishes that sentence, and we're going to get there in just a moment. But if, if anyone wants to be my follower, here's a few things that he didn't say. If anybody wants to be my follower, let them follow their heart. Let them fulfill their dream. Let them go with their gut. Let them do what makes them happy. Let them be a good person. Let them follow their truth. Let them cherry pick the commandments that they want to follow and ignore the rest. He doesn't say anything like that. The commitment that Jesus gives is costly. The, the decision is personal. The, the requirements are made so very clear. And, and Luke chapter 9 is a very important transition point in, in the whole bit of the Gospels. It, it's full of meaning. It's full of consequence. Jesus pulls his disciples together at the beginning of that chapter and, and, and they're six months out from Easter, six months out from the cross. And everything at this point is starting to speak, starting to point to that date with destiny that Jesus has. And the, and the chapter starts with Jesus sending the 12 disciples out to the towns and villages of the area to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he brings them together and he gives to them the ability, he gives to them the authority to exercise heaven's power over the demonic realm and over the areas of, of physical disease and pain. And they have seen Jesus in the previous chapter demonstrate his power and his ability. And he says, everything that I've been able to do, you're now able to do. Go and preach. Go and tell them the good news of the kingdom. It's a successful mission. People hear, people become excited, and, and the disciples have attracted a lot of attention. So much attention, in fact, that everywhere they go, there's a, there's a crowd, a big crowd. People who, who drop everything that they have and follow and, and chase them, just wanting to see more. And as they're ministering in that, that area of Galilee, Herod, the the regional director, ruler over that region, is hearing about Jesus and all the things that he's doing. And the scripture says in, in this chapter that Herod is puzzled. He, he hears about this man who's doing extraordinary things, and, and he says, who is he? And somebody says, well, I think he's John the Baptist resurrected. And, and, and Herod says, no, he's not John the Baptist. I beheaded him. Somebody else says, well, I, I think he might be Elijah or he might be one of the, of the ancient prophets that has returned to life. And, and Herod is a man who doesn't believe in life after death. And so, so he, he says, I don't believe any of that. Who is this man about whom I, I'm hearing such amazing stories? And the scripture says that Herod kept trying to see Jesus and and there is an appointment down the road that he has with Jesus just before the crucifixion. 
as a result of, of the popularity of the buzz that's around Jesus. The crowds follow him and they, they get to a remote place where, where there are no public services. There's no restaurants. There's no inns to accommodate or feed the 5,000 men and their families that have followed him out into this desolate place. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, I want you to feed them. Well, Master, first of all, we don't have the money. Second of all, there's no place around where if we had the money, we could get the, the food. I, I want you to feed them. And they find a lunch, and you know the story. He breaks it up, and he has them sit in groups, and, and, and the 10,000-plus crowd is fed, and there are 12 huge baskets that are full to overflowing afterwards. And, and this is a turning point. This is a turning point for the disciples who have followed Jesus now for almost two and a half years. They're amazed to see Jesus take that very little, those five loaves, those two fishes, and feed this vast crowd. And shortly after the feeding miracle, Jesus leads his followers to a, an isolated place away from the crowds. And, and it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, one day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do people say that I am? They're alone. They don't have to give the right answer. They just, they're just having conversation. And, and, and Jesus takes this question to his followers that Herod has been asking. Men, when, when you're out, when you were out with the crowds, when you were going to the villages, into the towns, what were people saying? Who, how were they defining who I was and what I was doing? How, how did they understand my mission? And, and the answers that come to Jesus are the same answers that, that Herod is getting. Well, some believe that you're John the Baptist, and, and, and some believe that you're Elijah, and some believe that you're a resurrected prophet of some kind. The question is vital. Who is he will determine the level of commitment that they will bring to the mission? If he's just a good man, they will take what they can and they'll move on. Because good men come and good men go and life goes on and, and you pay attention to whatever's in front of you. If he's a person of import and, and has come back from the dead, then they will follow and they will listen until either that is disproved or, or disbelieved. It, it's all wrapped up in this question, who do you think that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And the answer is they're not really sure. Their commitment level is very low. Their curiosity is extremely high. They're coming out to see you because they want to know what you're going to say. They want to see what you're going to do. But then Jesus zeroes in on the followers with, with that line in the sand that brings them to a place they have to decide right now where they're going. Verse 20, Jesus then asked them, who do you say that I am? The question is not, 
asked to, to prove popularity or to gain an approval rating. It's the key to their future. It's the decision that each of them and each of us must ultimately make. Is he worth sacrificing their futures for? Leaving their dreams behind, their lives for? Is it worth letting go of what they thought life was all about so that they can grasp, they can hold on to who he is and what he's doing? Peter, having been just traveling through the towns and villages and seeing the, the power of God work through him, Having just been where 10,000 people were fed with the contents of this little tiny bag lunch with mounds of food left over, responds immediately and his response reflects the, the common thought, the common opinion of all the 12 that are gathered at the feet of Jesus. We know who you are right now. You're the Messiah. You're the one that the Old Testament prophesied and pointed to. You are sent by God. You are who a nation has been longing to see arrive. You are the Son of God. We'll pick up on this a little later on the Easter season, but you didn't come to that on your own. You didn't, you didn't just get smart enough to understand that and see that the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. You see, we all have to come to peace. We, we have to fight our way through that life-deciding question, who is Jesus? You have to open your Bible. You have to, to read what he says, what he asks. You have to understand the, claim, understand the claims that he makes on your life. Understand the impact, the consequence of, of your obedience or your disobedience. You have to come to the line that is drawn in the sand and you have to decide, is Jesus who he said he is? Do I follow or do I go my own way? It's the most important question of all of our lives. There isn't one that's more important. It's essential. It's the standard by which every other part of our life is measured and assessed. Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the one sent by God. And, and they've discovered the truth now. And, and, and Jesus explains, okay, you're, you're part of me. You've come across the line. Now I want to I draw a picture for you of what's ahead. Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. He will be killed. But on the third day, he will be raised again. There's trouble, men, Jesus says. There's trouble on the horizon. You will see me suffer many terrible things. This is not what anybody wanted to hear. They've been seeing crowds as they have grown and increased. And it's not hard to believe that it's only a matter of time before they reach the critical mass. And Jesus is installed as the leader of Israel. And that Rome is expelled and life will be what it was meant to be. And Jesus is telling them in advance, you better let go of that because that's not how it's going to turn out here. 
you, you will see me suffer many terrible things. Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual things. I, I, I will be rejected by the religious establishment. Completely vilified and rejected. I will be killed. He doesn't use die. He says, I will be killed. I will be put to death. He'd said that before, but they, they thought that he was speaking in parables and that it was some kind of spiritual picture of, of some kind of not real death. But no, he is very plain here. I will be killed. And, and for the first time in all of his ministry, he, he, he brings up with these followers that on the third day, I'll, I'll be brought back from the dead. This, this is an important chapter in the Gospels. Everything turns on it. There's this spiritual battle that is unbelievably fierce and difficult. It, it will be pain-filled. It will be brutal. Everything that hell has will be leveled against him. It will appear that I've lost, but hold on to this. I will live again after three days. Oh. What he says doesn't altogether sink in. It, it, it doesn't register. It makes no sense to them. They, it, it, it's not in context or, or, or within the grasp of what they thought was going to happen. But he is stating fact. And Jesus continues. He talks not only about his death, but now he wants to talk about theirs. You see, a follower can't expect any better than his leader. Can't expect anything different than the one he follows. And so here's what is required in order for you to follow me. Verse 23, and then he said to the crowd, to the, to the disciples and the group that traveled with him. Remember, they're alone away from all the rest of the crowds. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Here we are at the fulfillment of that sentence. If any of you wants to be my follower, there are three requirements that I need to address with you. We've talked about my death. Now let's talk about yours. You're, you're, you first must be willing to give up your own way. The King James Version is even more demanding. You must say no. You must deny yourself. It's a brutal confrontation of our selfishness. In a world that hangs on how I feel, what I think, my personal opinion, my time, my dream, my agenda, my expectation, my convenience, Jesus says, that doesn't fit into what I'm offering here to you. If you're going to follow me, then you must say no to selfishness. There's no room for it. You, you must give up holding on to all that you think, all that you feel is good for you. There are other careers and callings where you were required to let go of at least some of your desires to fulfill a greater mission. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, soldiers don't get tied up in civilian affairs for 
then they cannot please the officer who enlisted, enlisted them. They, they say no to their own agenda so that they can say yes to their commanding officer. Teams win or lose on their ability to be disciplined, to leave their own thoughts out of it and do what they're told by the captain or by the coach. The, the second demand, the second requirement is even more costly, even more demanding than the first. You must take up your cross. I've been reminding myself this season about the meaning of the cross. We, we have jewelry that reflects the cross. Usually it's polished, it's, it's pretty, it's... But there was nothing pretty, attractive, compelling about a cross. It was a powerful, forceful statement used by the Romans to put fear into Israel. It was an intimidating object lesson that the Romans used to keep the, the general population in, in line. A criminal or a captive would be brought into a public square and humiliated. They, they would be brought to a very public space and they would be stripped naked and then they would be whipped until their skin tore and until blood flowed, sometimes until the person was unrecognizable. The person was then made to carry their cross or at least the cross bar of their cross from, from the place of their beating through the public square to the place of their death. They, they were marched through the crowds of, of their neighbors, of their family, of their friends in the town where they lived to a place where they were to die. And by doing that, by carrying your cross, you were, you were implying, you were giving an implied admission that the Romans were right in imposing the death sentence on me. They're right. I'm wrong. You should be careful to live in alignment with the laws and wishes of Rome, or this will be your fate too. They would have to carry a sign that would identify them. Their, their facial features may have been marred by the beating. And so this sign would be attached to it all, naming the person and putting, uh, and, and putting out there the crime that they were guilty of and were being punished for. That, that all was bad enough, but then they get to the site of death where, they're, where he's nailed to the, to the cross and the death, it was, it was torturous, it was agonizing. It, it, it depended on the health, the strength, the life of, of the one who was being crucified. It, it depended on the amount of blood that they'd lost in the beating. It depended on the patience of the Roman soldiers. They, the soldiers had to stay there until they were determined to be dead. And if they were tired, if they were bored, they could just put you to death. But death on the cross could last for a matter of hours or even days. But it was always horrific. 
One of the words that comes out of this crucifixion scene is the word excruciating. Public. Gruesome. Humiliating. And Jesus takes this picture before... They've seen people die that way, but they, they don't understand that this is what he's talking about in his life, and now he's talking about their lives. Jesus says to them, take up your cross. He's not talking about enduring a bothersome, difficult burden. He, he is saying that we renounce and distance ourselves from our self-centered ambitions and that, that, that comes so easily to us that I carry my cross that says, my ways are wrong. His ways are right. His is the true way. His, his path is the right way. Luke in, includes to that phrase, Luke's the only one who includes this, pick up your cross every single day. Daily. It's not a one and done experience. It's, it's every day choosing to get up and renounce my agenda and decide to live according to the call that has been put on my life by Jesus. Despite what I feel or what I say or, 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 or think or see, if I want to follow him, I must put this to death every day. And finally, he says, follow me. Copy what I do. Adapt to my thinking. Change your life so that the things I do reflect, the things you do reflect my values. The discipline, the obedience that he exemplified. That I conduct my way, my, my life following his example. If I want to be his follower, I can't be singing Sinatra's I did it my way. I want, to, want my life to reflect Jesus. It has to be lived. My life has to be lived his way. Verse 24, if you, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Jesus wants you to understand that it's costly. Count the cost, he says, before you make the commitment. But it's costly. But it's an effective way to live life. The, the person who hangs on to their life, who, who lives according to their own design and plan, will come to the end of that life and find out that their life really had no purpose, had no impact, had no value. But, but the life that is surrendered to follow Jesus in obedience is a life that is meaningful, is worthwhile, is fulfilling. Paul teaches that Jesus never asks anything of you, never asks anything of me that he's not willing, has not been willing to do himself. From Philippians chapter 2, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to, to cling to. 
Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. He, he died a criminal's death on a cross, and therefore God, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him a name that's above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself. He said no to all of it and God made sure that it was worthwhile. And Jesus says, I, I want you to pay the price. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Don't, don't hang on, because that, that will take you nowhere. Verse 25, if you're still fighting with this, if you're still struggling with this, you probably have to go back to the question, who do you say that I am? But think further on this. What, what does it matter if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are lost, you yourself are destroyed, you see, Jesus leaves the decision with us personally. We are free agents. We get to choose. But he does make sure that we understand that every decision has a consequence. You have a cho choice and you may choose to live according to your own personal plan and you might hit the big time and be successful and wealthy and influential and famous. However, here's the measuring stick. In this life, you meet with incredible success and everything that you want and everything that you dreamed of, and, it, and it's enjoyed until the last minute of your living. What then? Well, then we appear before the judge, the all-knowing God, and, and the content of our life is measured by this all-knowing God, and everything that we have is put to the test. It's shot through with fire, and that which is useless and has no real eternal meaning is lost. It's destroyed instantaneously. And the things that aren't valuable, or the things that aren't valuable melt and burn, and the things that are valuable and worthwhile, they stand and withstand the test, and that's what we have to present to the Father. If you have it all here, but it's all lost at that moment, it's all reduced to ash in, in that most telling of test, what is the benefit, what is the advantage? There is none, Jesus says. And he goes on and he says, listen, if you're ashamed of me, if you're ashamed of my message, then there will come a moment when we stand and the Father will look at me and say, do you know this individual? And I will say, I, I don't know him. The, the disciples have already endured all sorts of ridicule. They've left their careers. They've abandoned their assets. They've endangered their lives by associating with Jesus and and, and they're told by their contemporaries, maybe by their mothers, by the people that have a voice in their lives, that they're wasting their time. Go back to work. Yet they see something. They understood that in Jesus there was something more than they had ever expected, ever anticipated. And Jesus says, there's a loyalty requirement. It has to be this. Jesus, you're the center of my life. You're the first of everything I do, of everything that I think. 
Jesus says, follow me. I want you to be my followers. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. I, I, I think in these verses that there's an understanding that comes as to why we don't see the things we need to see right now in our lives. That we're not seeing the things that we long to see happen in our gatherings, in our mission. And it's found here in these verses. I have been, I am wrestling with the implications, with the cost, the consequences of these words of Jesus. I really wanted to preach Psalm 23 this morning. But I feel like we're in a really important moment in time. And that, I, that we're hearing his voice. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. I realize that it's a very difficult concept to grab hold of. And I, I've been praying. I've been saying, God, like in this in this generation where there's no, nothing really to look at that sort of illustrates that, how, how do I make this clear? I, I, I've been praying and I've been asking God for, for something. I, I understand that only the Holy Spirit can take what I'm saying, can take these words of Scripture and make them come alive in your, in your heart and in your life. But, but I ask God for a picture, for an illustration of what deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me looks like. I want to show you a picture. How many know who this is? No one. His name is John Sullivan. He's 62 years old. He was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Graduated from Brown University and got his Ph.D. from Columbia Law School. He went on to clerk in the Supreme Court for Justice David Souter. He has served as the senior advisor to four presidential campaigns and has worked in the Department of Commerce in various roles. has been the Secretary of State for a period of 16 months. He's an accomplished, successful man who has more information, more connections than most people we will ever know. He currently makes a salary of just over $180,000 per year, which is not a bad paycheck, but is much less than what he could make in the private sector with his skills and with his connections. In February 2020, President Donald Trump asked him to serve his country as the U.S. ambassador to Russia. In 2021, President Joe Biden saw his value despite his political association and affiliation. And he was one of just a few that was asked by the Biden administration to stand strong and firm as the ambassador to Russia. He's a man who could be very wealthy 
just selling his contacts, selling his influence, selling his know-how to the highest bidder. He, he's a man who could, at his age, find a much easier assignment. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come. Especially right now. A, a, a man with a voice, a man with all sorts of influence, who has taken and put that voice that he has on hold. And has decided to say to the Russian leader that he has been sent to only the things that his president tells him to say. He, he doesn't go into the Kremlin and say, hey, Vlad, listen, I want to tell you what I think. He, he doesn't say, Mr. Putin, let me share with you my opinion or my five-step plan to get us out of the mess we find ourselves in today with the Ukraine. He, he has... No, he has said no to his reasonable, saleable abilities in order that he can serve the greater good of both his nation and his generation. He says, he does, he acts, he responds to the direction of his president. His words, when asked for his personal opinion, are, I serve at the pleasure of the president. It's not exactly the same, but it's a good picture to start with, to understand what Jesus requires of us. Say no to your selfish ambitions. Pick up the cross. Admit that he's the right way. He's the only way. Follow me. Serve at the pleasure of your king. Say what he tells you to say. Go, do, be all that he requires. I serve at the pleasure of my king. His will be done. To those who are in this house, those who call this their home, you can, I've been praying that you would pick up a pen if you're a songwriter, and that you would write new words, new, new ways of saying this, but I grew up with this beautiful hymn. There's so many places that I've been in my life where I've gotten kind of worked up. I've, I've kind of thought that that's not fair. I, I need to, boy, this God, you better avenge me here. Like, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Where are you? The question always comes back. Who am I to you? I've just gone through a few days of that in the last few days. And every time I, I come and I sing this out, all to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at His feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. 
Take me, Jesus. Take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all.